This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching The Only Show, covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Notices are on the way to federal employees eligible for COVID vaccines at a new mass vaccination site. The Department of Health and Human Services is operating the site specifically for federal employees in Gaithersburg, Maryland. GovExec reports the vaccinations are for essential critical infrastructure workers. Three high-level positions at the Defense Department have nominees tonight. Two of them are familiar faces. President Biden's nominated former Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller Mike McCord to take that job again. He's nominated the Director of the Defense Innovation Unit, Mike Brown, to become the Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment. Defense News reports Ronald Moultrie is the nominee to become the Undersecretary for Intelligence and Security. New rules for federal employees who need to change their health insurance during a future government shutdown are official. The new regulations make federal employee health benefit program and federal employee group life insurance program employees essential if there's another shutdown. GovExec reports those programs furloughed employees during previous shutdowns and employees who needed to make changes couldn't. Remote work at Citizenship and Immigration Services during the pandemic means doing interviews with people who want to come to the U.S. remotely. That's driven some infrastructure and architecture changes at the DHS component. Robert McMullen is Deputy Chief Information Officer of Operations and Infrastructure at USCIS. Rob, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What did you have to pivot from and what have you pivoted to architecture-wise as a result of the pandemic? So, certainly, the the, the because USCIS is a fee-funded uh, organization, you know we don't we don't get the the same appropriations that most of the rest of the agencies get. Uh, we drive our funding by how many interviews we do because they they are they are paid for by citizens that are coming in, and uh, so when the pandemic hit, of course we immediately went to hardly any interviews and because everything was in person. So our reality in the IT shop was, how do we make this happen? So doing uh, different things with uh, technology, uh, you know, increasing our, our, our bandwidth, at, you know, in our network, uh, putting iPads and, and, and smart tablets everywhere uh, allowed us to continue to conduct interviews safely where we had maybe the interviewer in a one room we had the interviewee in another room we had the lawyer in another room we had the interpreter in another room uh, it allowed us to continue to operate and and create revenue for the agency and uh if it wasn't for technology, I think we would have furloughed 66% of our organization. So it was it was huge. It was absolutely huge. What have you learned through this transformation, Rob, that will stick with CIS 
as we start to come out of the pandemic, things maybe potentially will go back to somewhat similar to normal uh, before March of 2020. Uh, but what do you expect to see continue despite the whatever the end of the pandemic looks like? Uh, gr- great question. And 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 quite frankly, you know, I, I'm an old school kind of guy. And, uh, you know, the, the thought of telework and thought of remote working, it was never really like the, my thing. But as we've gone through this, watching the sheer volume of interviews that we're doing from people that, you know, even if it was just in a different office to another office to another office, that's one thing. We are now getting to the point now that, you know, let, let's let's say Detroit is, uh, they're a little low on the number of people that are coming in, where they now can interview folks that are coming in to the Southwest border. So uh, that, is all because of technology. You know, we kind of created these remote interviews that I think it's going to just continue to drive and drive where we don't have to have adjudicators and officers sitting in a specific place interviewing a specific person. They could be anywhere, you know, whether they're at their house, whether they're in Detroit, whether they're in, you know, San Diego, it doesn't even matter. and and that's kind of the the, the, the drive that we're, we're pushing that you know we don't need this and I think uh, that that's pretty that's pretty key you talked a little bit about the hardware demands to uh, at the edge have you had to do anything or do will you have to do anything moving forward infrastructure wise behind the scenes to make sure that what you have at the edge works the way it's supposed to for your end users no, no, hundred percent. You, you, you're so on point on that. That um, so, you know, we we have our network uh, primed and, and and running, but at the same time, we know it's 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 not complete. We're, we're not there a hundred percent, and uh, so we we've been actually reaching out to each individual office, saying, okay, here's how many interviews you can do in a particular hour to to kind of to kind of flow through that to make sure that we can keep doing that. But uh, as we go forward, uh, we we are definitely trying to boost our network. It, it is our number one priority is to continue to in, in, invest in the network, invest in what we're doing, uh, you know, whether it's uh, stuff that we're doing in the cloud, whether it's stuff that we're, we're doing you know, on-prem, I mean, at this point, everything is, is, is cloud-focused, but yeah, that, that's, that's where we're at. Have you done anything differently, or do you think you will do things differently moving forward to secure that network, to make sure that all this information moving back and forth is safe? Uh, oh, yeah, there, there, there's no doubt. Um, uh, you know, we, we all know we took a hit um, with the, the the solar winds crisis, we all we everybody knows we took we took that hit, and uh, so the 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 sheer amount of of resources and money that we're putting into uh, you know ensuring that our network is safe is key, and um, so yes, we, we we that that's one of our our driving factors is the fact that um, we're trying to make that happen. 
Rob McMullen, thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Coming next, a reset at the State Department. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the drive to make the diplomatic corps more diverse. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The House Appropriations Committee will consider ways to improve diversity and inclusion at the State Department. The committee got some advice Thursday at a hearing. Harry Thomas is Senior Program Coordinator at ITility. He's former U.S. Ambassador to Zimbabwe, and he testified at that hearing. Mr. Ambassador, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining me today. What's the message that you wanted to convey to that Appropriations Committee hearing? Thanks for having me, Francis. The message we wanted to convey is that diversity and inclusion is important for America. It strengthens America when we use all Americans to the best of their ability, especially in foreign policy in a globalized uh, world. You said something at, at that hearing that I found interesting. You said that when you and uh, your colleagues joined the Foreign Service, there was a black circuit, Africa and the Caribbean, and that that still exists. What's your view that, uh, about how to change that, about how to find assignments for people of all backgrounds in all parts of the world, sir? Well, it takes leadership, Francis. It takes leadership from the top of the department, uh, particularly the director general, the undersecretary for management, the secretary of state, to ensure that all uh, foreign service officers and specialists are given the opportunity to serve in the areas where they would like. And that has to be sustained. It strikes me the sustainment of that, Mr. Ambassador, comes at all levels and not just the ambassadorial levels. What would you like to see the State Department do to start to grow those foreign service officers earlier on in their careers? I would like to see a formal mentorship program so that people coming in, whether no matter whether they're women, minorities, or people from rural areas that don't have a tradition of serving in the State Department, understand what they have to do, the type of assignments they have to undertake to succeed, to rise in the Foreign Service and not leave uh, bittered, bitter and uh, dispirited. How is the State Department doing so far? What resources do they have today that they could build on? And what do they need to build from scratch to fulfill the vision that you and your colleagues are laying out, sir? They have all the tools necessary, Francis. Uh, first thing they should do is mentor people coming in through orientation, officers and specialists about the career aspirations. Then this summer, when the assignment season takes place. Make sure that everybody's given an opportunity to serve in the, the areas around the world. When they are choosing ambassadors, the ambassador's deputy and consul's general, again, make sure that's equitable and fair. That is the statistics over the last four years in terms of promotions for African Americans have been among the lowest ever. So the promotion panels also need to be diverse and inclusive. And you, you anticipated where I wanted to go next. There's a pretty clear line of delineation uh, among the uniformed services in the military. 
if you want to become a, a general or flag officer, you position your career in such a way, and you anticipated, I think, by laying out some of those jobs underneath mm -hmm. ambassador where people should aspire to go. Does the State Department, do you think, do a good job of explaining that to its own personnel so that people understand, if I want to reach a job at a certain level, what the job underneath that level is and underneath that level and so on? They do a fair job. The challenge is, Francis, ambassadors pick their deputies. There's a panel that picks uh, consul generals. And those panels have failed to do their job repeatedly over decades of giving, giving women and minorities opportunities. So the leadership of the department needs to ensure that those panels give the people jobs. And also the assistant secretaries who are the powers in charge of the regional and functional bureaus in the State Department have to allow people of color and minority uh, women into those areas. As I've said in my testimony, Europe, Near East Affairs, and the East Asian Pacific are still closed, uh, closed shops uh, to most of us who are women and minorities. One of the things the military's done to try to address that is removing names and photographs from promotion packets. Would there, is there some equivalent, some similar thing that the State Department could do to, uh, to, to achieve what you're suggesting? Well, Francis, the Army still has the photographs, and that's one of the challenges that uh, African-American officers face in the Army. But going to the State Department, uh, the, the real thing is to make sure that people are mentored for their evaluations, to make sure that they know what needs to go inside their evaluation. And also, we have something we call the suicide box, where you have to write what, where you'd like to go and what mistakes or things that you've made to make sure that you do not commit suicide when you're writing about your hopes, aspirations, and things that you need to improve upon. We have about a minute left, uh, Mr. Ambassador. What will you watch to see what kind of progress the department makes? And what's a reasonable timeline for some of these things, uh, for the uh, department to achieve some of these things? The reasonable timeline is this fall. By the time assignments come out for ambassadors, their deputies, consul generals, and the mid-level and junior officers. I'd like to see each assistant secretary have to make reports, uh, quarterly reports to the secretary. And we'd like to see those who achieve their diversity goals and objectives financially rewarded. The big challenge will be how do we sustain this uh, from administration to administration? Because you may have another administration like uh, Pompeo and Trump, where they clearly do not want to see uh, women and people of color uh, achieve their, their aspirations. Mr. Ambassador, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program, sir. You take care. Happy Easter. Up next, more vaccines in arms, and that means back to the office may be gearing up. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the federal government's reopening plan. What is it, and what should it be? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Welcome back. Federal agencies have coronavirus hiring authorities from the Office of Personnel Management through the rest of this year. That authority lets agencies hire employees working on the pandemic response and serve terms up to two years. Jeff Neal's former chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Jeff, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. 
what's the back-to-work play look like? We keep hearing in the business media about the back-to-the-office trade, and I wonder what that looks like from the viewpoint of somebody thinking about how their employees might start to come back to the office soon. Well, there's a lot to, to look at when you're thinking about having people come back to work. You know, one is, do you have a safe workplace? You know, the reason people were not working uh, in the office was the pandemic. They were, we were afraid of going into an office and getting sick. And you've got federal employees now who are working in many cases in buildings that are 50, 60, 70 years old. And these buildings weren't really designed necessarily with ventilation systems that you might want now to, to help keep from spreading something like the coronavirus around. So there's that to worry about. Uh, are you going to have uh, a lot of telework? Are you going to have more people coming back into the office? Or are you going to have more people staying at home? Are you going to have a hybrid system? What does a hybrid look like? Is it, you know, is it based on, on what the person does and what kind of customer interaction they have? Or is it based on you know, what somebody's personal preferences are? So there are a lot of different things that they're going to have to think about. And most of them aren't particularly easy. And they're also not things that agencies are guaranteed to get right the first time. So the, the idea of the buildings makes sense to me when we're not sure what the spread of the virus looks like. I keep reading, I'm getting my first shot tomorrow. I keep reading that two weeks after my second shot, I'm at virtually no risk to get the virus. Do ventilation systems and the other safety measures matter as much when you have a pretty wide cohort of people in an agency that have gotten both shots or in the case of the Johnson and Johnson shot have gotten their shot? Well, you know, a, a wide cohort is not a complete cohort. So let's say 25% of employees, for some reason, don't want to get uh, the vaccine. Maybe they don't want to get it because, you know, they've turned it political. Maybe they don't want it for some other reason. Maybe they don't want it because they can't take the vaccine. They've had allergic reactions to things before, and their doctor says, no, I don't think you should get it. Then you have to worry, worry about yourself, but also worry about, what happens to the people that you work with? And are these people that you work with who either can't or won't get a vaccine able to work safely? So it's, it's more than just worrying about the individual employees. What's the strategy that somebody should be thinking about? Proactive in that we're going to try to figure out what a remote work strategy looks like or reactive based on what their employees tell them they're comfortable with, they want to see in the workplace, what they've learned about telework, uh, the individual employees have learned about telework and their own personal habits, that kind of thing. Well, I think what we're gonna see is that, that all of those things are true. Uh, people should be working proactively right now, and I think most federal agencies are actively planning how they're gonna get people back to whatever the new normal looks like. Then you're also gonna have things that happen after people get back to work where people find out that things are not working in some way. And, and employees will express the views about that to their bosses. And that's, it's a great thing because one of the places you learn is from the people doing the work. So they will, they will have plans, they will execute those plans, they will learn from those plans. Uh, one army general I used to work for always used to tell me, you know, when you go into battle, you have to have a plan and the, the first casualty of the battle was the plan. Mm -hmm. So, so we shouldn't think agencies are doing something wrong when they make a plan, implement it, and then they learn as they bring pe people back 
that maybe parts of their plan weren't quite right, and then they adjust. And, and I think that's what we're going to see over the next probably year or even two, that the agencies are going to have to learn what a hybrid workplace looks like. And I think that's where we're going to end up with most agencies is in a hybrid workplace. You're going to have people who work in the office most of the time. You're going to have people who work at home most of the time. You're going to have people who have some mix of home and office work. So, so that's what I think the workplace will look like. It seems like the best thing that someone can do based on your description is explain to their employees, we might not get this 100% right and we need you to help us shape this strategy as we move forward. Otherwise, you're going to get a bunch of eye rolls on the back end. Well, of course they mess this up. They never, nobody ever gets anything right. When what you're saying sounds completely reasonable that this is really complicated. Nobody's ever really done anything like this before and getting it 100% right is not very likely. No, I, that's that's exactly it. Agencies are not going to necessarily get it right the first time. They need to be talking to their employees now. They need to talk to their employees once they execute whatever their plan is, and they need to keep on talking to them. And and more than talk, just talking to them, more importantly, they need to listen to their employees because their employees will be giving them very valuable information that they need to be able to have a workplace that's safe and productive and does the work of the American people and carries out the missions of these agencies. We have about 30 seconds left, Jeff. What does a successful back to the office campaign look like a year, 18 months, two years out? Uh, it looks like something where we have as many people uh, who can work from home and want to working from home. We have productivity measures in place, so we know that people are working from home. And we have something that we can use as a recruiting tool for the federal government that says the federal government is a modern workplace and you can have a very flexible work arrangement uh, and work-life balance if you come to work for the federal government. Jeff Neal, thanks very much as always. Thanks for having me. You can find the link to Jeff's blog, chiefhro.com at govmatters.tv slash resources. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website, too. You get a preview of every program. When you sign up for our daily program guide, you just text GOVMATTERS to 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes about how government can use software to find wide area networks to deliver the best digital experience for constituents and staff. Government agencies are continuing the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Vehicle, EIS, for telecom-related services. Industry experts are calling on agencies to use it for citizen-facing government. Tony Bardo is here. He's Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes Network Solutions. Tony, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What does 
the EIS vehicle provide for agencies to make these kinds of transitions, to do the network modernization that they need to do? It's a great question, uh, as you always do lead off with, uh, Francis, and it's good to see you again, talk to you again. But uh, here's, it's more interesting really to talk about what it hasn't uh, delivered yet. And uh, GSA fa faced an interesting conundrum when they were uh, putting EIS together and it was necessary to do so and they had the right vision for it and the right ideas to bring in some new blood and new new vendors and new kinds of companies. But the the services available to to the government at the time were still the same services that have been around for 20 years. Um, and that is the the MPLS network um, services that worked during the end of FTS 2001 and throughout the networks contract. So um, the, the, the new services, the new modern services were just emerging. These are the new SD-WAN, the managed broadband services. And these are the kinds of services that are better equipped for handling the large surge and surges of bandwidth demand for the agencies, particularly at the edge. So what was what the agencies were sort of presented with was, here's a new contract and it's got a new timetable and it's got a new scope of work and a new span of work and a new body of, 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 uh, of a performance period, but it didn't really have the new services that met the goal or the, the mantra of transforming. So what we saw in some of the early um, fair opportunities that uh, that the agencies were issuing, and it really took them a long time to start issuing them, um, but they 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 were basically asking for like for like services, and that wasn't really a a plan for transforming, and it didn't. The, many of the fair opportunities, unfortunately, did not show the the vision for transforming. SD-WAN was emerging, so it was a tough call. It was a, you know, we've got to get this contract, new contract out, because the old contract is aging, it's expiring, it's got its uh, limited time frame. So it was an interesting, um, you ask an interesting question. It, it, the platform really wasn't ready there to, to, uh, to transform and leap into transformation and modernization. It's starting to happen, though. You uh, gave me a term before we started recording, and I want, to tell, want you to tell me what it means and why it's important. Managed service provider, why does that matter to agencies and, and why is that concept helpful to them in these transitions, Tony? The concept, concept is really helpful because the, the, pro, the providers and the services and managing them um, makes it easier for the agencies. These, these agency telecom managers have really got it tough. They 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 have this they have this contract that they were uh, compelled to use and and encouraged to use, and they wanted to modernize. Uh, they're running their own networks today every day. They have to issue these fair opportunities to compete the business among the uh, providers, the the prime uh, contractors on EIS. And they've got to do it all at the same time and all with the same workload and workforce that they that they have. So these are really, really tough. Getting obtaining managed services takes the burden 
off of the limited staffs of the agencies and lets the lets the um, service providers do the work. So managed service providers can then um, offer these services, manage the networks, manage the uh, security aspects of the networks, manage the routing of the traffic on the networks through the modern architectures of broadband, managed broadband, and managed SD-WAN. Tony, there's always more great ideas to talk about than there is time to talk about them. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. Take care.